Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 291. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jock. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 291 you're listening to. My guest today is Greg Gordon, who is the founder and director over at Peermind in San Francisco. He's a producer, an educator, an entrepreneur. That's just scratching the surface of what he does. He is a very busy guy who's been at this a, a very long time. He's worked on games. He's worked with companies like Sony, Electronic Arts, Disney, Blizzard. Uh, he's also a music producer. He's worked with Joan Baez, Merle Saunders, and Jerry Garcia, as well as Rob Garza from Thievery Corporation. Uh, he's out there doing panels and lectures at South by Southwest, as well as AES. And he's also been an active member of the Recording Academy for 25 plus years. He served on the Board of Governors and as a trustee. And he is my guest today. Very much looking forward to having him on the show today. Greg Gordon coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about spreading your wings. Recently on episode number 289, I had on guest George Vlad, who's a field recordist. And like many of my guests, I was very inspired by that interview with George and my interactions with George just over time of not only following him in what he does, but also just talking with him and interacting with him. And I have to say, quite honestly, while many of my guests do influence me, George's influence has been significant. I've really gone down a field recording rabbit hole uh, I have to confess. And I've joined this Slack channel that is filled with field recording people and sound designers and people that work on games and films and do ecology type projects. It's interesting to me because it has the ability to be a solitary type activity. I don't know if it's a result of the times we're living in right now with COVID, but it doesn't require any other people to be around. It doesn't really depend on a performance from another individual and it doesn't depend on anybody's financial resources or budget except, you know, the person doing the recording. You know, you can get up, go record birds or sound effects or, you know, strange things that you find in the environment with, you know, a very small recording rig, and you can do it without interaction from other people. There's something kind of enticing about that to me. I'm not gonna abandon doing music anytime soon. I love it and it's a part of me. But this allows me to exercise my love of audio in a different way and actually have it exist as a hobby, of course, until I you know, see a way that it could be monetized in the future. But for now, it's an enjoyable hobby. The techniques and the tricks that I'm learning from the people that I'm interacting with really are teaching me new skills and new ways of thinking. And that, in turn, I think, is informing the other things that I do, mixing, mastering, uh, recording bands. And it's really refreshing, I have to say. It's given me another aspect of audio to become 
enthusiastic about. Not to say that I'm not enthusiastic, but I think all of you could recognize that, you know, when you first get into recording, there's a childlike innocence about your love of it. And as you get further down the line with it, that innocence somewhat goes away and it becomes a profession, a job, it's more serious, you become more adult-like with it, and it becomes more practical in some ways. This field recording, to me, has turned into the new passion that I can revisit that innocence, that early passion and discovery, which has really been enjoyable. Have I bought some new gear? Yeah, I have to confess, I've bought some gear. I'm not going too deep yet, but I have made some purchases and I've gone out there and uh, started doing some recording and collection of sounds. And it's uh, also got me into conversations about how audio for games are done, how audio for movies are done and what the different people involved are looking for. I know that we all can tend to get into a bubble within our own discipline. And I think that's really the point of, of my, my rant here is that maybe you're a mastering engineer, maybe you're a recording engineer, maybe you do location sound. The concept here is, is spread your wings. Try out different parts of the audio discipline world so it can better inform what you do in your main gig and to do it better with a fresh perspective and new ideas. Something to think about. So spread your wings, drink more coffee, and thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Greg Gordon here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. You're at Pyramine headquarters in San Francisco. I'm recording this out of our studio facilities back on Gilbert Street, which ah. is between 6th and 7th and Bryant Brannan here in San Francisco. And that's a place you've had control of for years, if I'm correct. Yeah, I initially came into this space in 1987. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is full circle for me because I uh, started the business here, grew the business here, developed my partnership with Matt Donner here, and then together we moved on to Folsom Street where we continued to grow our company into over 10,000 square feet of space across two buildings on Folsom Street. And then finally, as of September of last year, and we moved out of this building here on Gilbert Street in 2003, and that's when we began our expansion at 880 Folsom Street. And that led to our expansion in 2007 to 832 Folsom Street. And then eventually last year, September 2019, our leases came up for renewal for a second time. Mm -hmm. And we had an option to renew at a fixed rate. But by that point, the rate, the landlords had already overjacked our lease quite substantively. And I just decided I was tired of working for the landlord. So we decided to approach this differently. And very fortunately, I had subtenants here at Gilbert Street for quite, quite some time. They'd done an extensive remodel of the studios, which are upstairs. They were struggling. So I approached them with the idea of us coming back in and working with them because they're still running their studio business here. There are several producers here that run sessions with clients. And I said, yeah, as long as we could come in, take over one of the main rooms and use the additional rooms as uh, student booking facilities for their training purposes. And we could run some classes out of here. And they agreed. And it was a very fortunate set of circumstances to be able to come back here and then forge a new partnership with another organization called the Bay Area Video Coalition. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Also go by BayVac. Very much so. Yeah, they're a great organization. And I met with Paula Aragoni, who is the executive director. They're a nonprofit. We talked about Pyramine's mission and the fact that they had a lot of extra space. They were in a process of downsizing as well. I don't know if you can hear a trend here, but <laughs> <laughs> being what it is here in San Francisco and property values and rents being what they are, of course, it'll be interesting to see the impact that COVID has on all of this. I was going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah, well, nonetheless, so uh, I, I was able to work out a fabulous arrangement with Paula, 
where we were able to go in there and take over a couple of their training lab spaces Mm -hmm. and also develop one of the studios there. They had a kind of podcast studio and we brought in a bunch of extra gear, beefed it out, better preamps, better mics, more isolation, a big Pro Tools rig so that our students have a studio on site there as well as the studios here at Gilbert Street that can be booked. So ultimately, it was phenomenal. Well, we were able to go into BayVac, establish our administrative offices there, along with training labs and a multi-purpose event space that they have there that they let us use too for our events, and really effectively reinvent ourselves at a much lower overhead cost to operate here in San Francisco. So I feel in that regard, I feel very blessed, very fortunate. So for the audience, give us the rundown of what Pyramind is to the listener that doesn't know or has never heard of Pyramind. Well, Pyramind is predominantly a music and audio production school these days. We've had a long history of running a production business. I have had a long history of doing that. Spent quite a few years in the game audio business, producing soundtracks, dialogue, sound effects, an implementation of audio into games, worked on quite a few AAA titles, worked on the Halo franchise, Mm. worked on Sunset Overdrive for Insomniac Games, produced 42 original songs for the soundtrack for that particular game. So we've worked on a lot of different things, done dialogue for Watch Dogs 2, which was a big Ubisoft title. So over the years, really had a lot of experience in developing audio for games. But my original history really goes back to working with different recording artists coming up in this facility, as a matter of fact, doing that. A lot of Bay Area talent, indie artists. And then in 2000, when Matt and I came together, Matt Donner, my business partner here, who became my business partner, I should say, at that time, and he was extremely energized about education and the opportunity to develop programs and education around this, which was certainly one of his fortes. So I agreed. I thought that was a great idea. So in the early 2000s, we made that shift from being a production studio to the development process of creating a school. And for the listener, if you want to hear, this is a perfect bookend, Matt and Greg, you can hear Matt's episode. That was WC number 161, and you can kind of get the Matt side of it and the Greg side of it. Let's go back. Let's focus on you for a bit. I want to figure out some stuff that I don't know about you. Where did you grow up? I'm a native San Franciscan. Wow. I was born and raised here in San Francisco. It's like you and four other people. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a first-generation American, the son of Canadian. My father's from Montreal. Uh-huh. He studied at McGill University and eventually immigrated to the United States to start his dermatology practice here in San Francisco. And my mother's French. She was born in Pau, which is a small town in the south of France. And she had a fairly traumatic childhood because I come from a Jewish family. Mm -hmm. And her time in the south of France, she was born right at the beginning of World War II. So her family had to flee the south of France to escape the Nazis and ended up in Switzerland in work camps where she was separated from her parents for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. But eventually they were able to flee that situation and go to South America. So she grew up, a big part of her childhood was in Venezuela, Caracas. And then uh, eventually she came back to France with her family to Paris, where she went to school. So as a result, I'm also multilingual. I was raised speaking French, so I'm fluent in French and also raised speaking a lot of Spanish. So I have a fairly good multilingual grasp in that capacity. At what point in your life did music and audio become an activity that you felt that you could 
work at to make a living? When did you make that decision to say, I'm going to be this? Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of a funny story, and it's connected to you in a very interesting way. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. So uh, when I was young, young child, I was a very gregarious child who loved to sing. So I would sing at every opportunity. My parents would send me to summer camp, and I was the one who sang his heart out all the time. And as a result, uh, my voice developed fairly rapidly. I had a very loud voice. I could sing. I couldn't sing necessarily so well, but I could sing to the point where everyone noticed me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was in the seventh grade that our glee club instructor... And I was part of the Glee Club because I le- every opportunity I could get to be in the choir or to sing or to act, I would do. And early on, I, I thought I was going to become an actor, actually. I, I, that was one of my intentions. Mm. Anyway, at that time in the seventh grade, he was auditioning for a program that was put together by the Boston Educational Group called Super Kids. Who was auditioning? The Glee Club leader at my school. Ah. Uh, so he was, I guess you would call him the music, the main music instructor there. Okay. And he asked me to audition. And I said, sure, why not? I'll do it. And so this was an interesting experience for me. It was called the Super Kids. It was basically each of the kids who were cast in this represented a letter in the alphabet. And I represented the letter I. I was Ickety. And so we rehearsed all these songs, and then we were taken to the recording studio to record them. And this was my very first recording experience in seventh grade, and I walked into the doors at Coast Recorders on Mission Street. (laughs) So this is our connection here in that regard. And that was my first recording experience. They put me in front of the mic, and they say, okay, kid, let's hear what you got. And I belted it out, and they were like, wow, okay. Yeah, you're pretty good. All right. You know, so I I was given a lot of confidence and kind of accolades and told that I nailed it. And when you're, I don't know, I was all of 12 years old or something at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly, but I loved it. I thought, this is it, man. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a singer and I'm going to record music. And it was fun. We did a whole bunch of sessions there for this. Of course, it was all on two inch tape at the time. And I was really smitten by the studio. And the process that I watched them go through to produce these recordings, it was fascinating to me. So from there, I went on to be a singer in numerous different bands, Mm -hmm. none of major noteworthiness, but we played a lot in the Bay Area, a lot of gigs. I don't know if you remember the Stone, Mm -hmm. the Bouhey Gardens, or the Chi-Chi Lounge, or all these places that we would play at here in San Francisco opening up for bigger acts, American Music Club, all these different bands that we would play with. I had a band that eventually we went, we had a couple of different names. One was called Spinal Finger. (laughs) And my inspiration was hard rock. I was inspired by hard rock, glam rock, everything from Queen to David Bowie to Aerosmith to Led Zeppelin to The Who. These were the artists that I grew up on. Well, if you're playing at the Stone, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we had a band called Spinal Finger. We had another band called Third Rail. And we, you know, we got a good amount of notoriety. And I thought, all right, we're going to do something here. And I had a, a songwriting partner back then who was incredibly bright and really good with computers. And he back then said, 
this is the future. The future is going to be producing with computers. And I said, really? You think so? And he said, absolutely. And he had an Amiga computer with some sequencing software on it. And we would tinker around with this. And he also had a four-track recorder, a kit that he'd put together. It was a Tascam kit. And we basically built our first studio using those devices in his parents' living room Hmm. over off Divisadero in the Castro. And that was my first DIY recordings that we would do there on the four track. The four track became a half inch TAC MX5050 recorder. We moved out of the parents' house into my first official studio, which was a house that we rented in the Castro when I was in college. And the band would rehearse there, we would have parties there, and we would record there. We literally had a snake that we ran up into the kitchen in the back of the house, and the snake would go down into the basement where we had set up a soundstage and put up all kinds of acoustical paneling in there. We would record our rehearsals and then ultimately record a bunch of our songs in there. And those demos actually got us our first record deal, which back then was a big deal. Oh yeah, it was everything. It was everything. And so being the smart Alex that we were, we decided we weren't gonna take that money and go pay a studio to record. We instead were gonna do it ourselves. And so think about it. This was back in 1980, 1985, about 1985. And ultimately that led to Gilbert Street, where we took the money to develop the facility here. Of course, we were so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, we had no idea what we were getting into back then. (laughs) And I think back on all those days of trying to build our own facility in this very raw space. And it was a tremendous amount of work to say the least, and took us a whole lot longer than we ever anticipated, which ended up totally torching our record deal, getting into a tussle with the label over the money because they wanted it back. Oh. Yeah, so there were some complications there, but suffice to say, in the end, we got to keep the money, and that was the seed that planted the tree of Pyramind, really. Do you own that building? I do not. You've been renting that building since 1985? 87. 87. Correct. Wow. Now, I have a tremendous relationship with the landlord here. I would say so. Yeah. And so as a result, I hope he doesn't hear this, (laughs) because he's been very kind and very generous, unlike the landlords we had on Folsom Street. He's kept the rent no more than 4% increases over each lease renegotiate and given me 10-year leases year over year every renegotiation so and there's only a few and and he's been fine with me subleasing so it's great it's worked out really well and the space has just been great to be able to come back to here it feels like home that's amazing that is that is a long-term lease that you just don't you don't hear about that very often i think his thinking is because it is the kind of space that it is he was very happy to have somebody he could trust because we had developed quite a good amount of trust between us over the years. And I think he was just happy to see me manage it for him. So in effect, I became a building manager for him on the space Uh and always made sure everything was handled. Do you think that because of that trust and that no hassle factor for him, that's why he kept it favorable for you all these years? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. There's a lesson right there for any studio owners who are renting. Yeah. 
there's no doubt that relationships are everything and good relationships are at the core of any solid business practices. So I, I always really look to establish strong relationships with the people I work with and collaborate with because I know in the end, and I've had bad experiences too with people where relationships go sour. It's inevitable over a 30 plus year career in this industry. I always try to pride myself on not letting that happen, but you know, things are what they are and people often will have differences of opinion or perspective on how things should be done. Mm -hmm. So sometimes things just don't go the way you plan or intend, but as long as your integrity remains solid, that's at the foundation of all of it. You ran that place for a studio for how long and when did Matt Donner come into the picture? So I don't think it really became a studio business per se until the early 90s. Mm. The first four years were really, it was all about a rehearsal space and us doing our own recordings, very guerrilla style. We had a handful of bands that worked out of here that all supported the facility financially, paying rent and getting access to the gear and also contributing gear. Mm. We didn't have a ton of gear going into this. So we partnered with a couple other bands one of which had a guy who had been doing quite a bit of recording already. So he had a console that he brought in. We had the 8-track, which eventually became a 1-inch 16-track, which eventually became ADATs, <laughs> locked to a 16-track, which eventually became Pro Tools, obviously. But yeah, before Matt came in, I ran it as an operation here, I'd say, from about 92 to about 2000. Matt and I met, I think it was 97, when he was working at Guitar Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a consulting client at the time who wanted to design her own home studio. And that was kind of the beginning of the writing on the wall for our industry, I would say, with the advent of the growth of recording, home recording and home studios. I think we were the precursor of that the kind of guerrilla style recording we were doing that eventually led to a much broader engagement of home studio developers. But nonetheless, I had a client. I went into a guitar center to buy my list of gear for her. And here I run square into this tall, curly haired, long haired dude who talked a lot. <laughs> and in the end, what I realized was he actually knew what he was talking about. With that East Coast accent. Yeah. And also, you know, how it is at Guitar Center, you don't really know what you're going to get or who you're going to get or what that's going to look like. So actually having somebody to be able to have a really intelligent conversation around this stuff with who made some really good, intelligent recommendations. And then ultimately I said, all right, so you really know what you're talking about here. You want to come down to the studio and check it out? He said, yeah, I'd love to. So I ended up bringing him down to the studio and, you know, Matt, straight out of New York, who'd been working, doing sessions over at various studios in New York, was excited to get his hands back on the gear and get out of sales mode and actually get back into producing. So I sicked him on some clients. So he started working for me as an engineer and taking on client work when he wasn't working over at Guitar Center. And over a period of about three years, we really developed that working relationship, which was the foundation of what we would ultimately grow together that became Peer Mind as it is today. Matt and I had become friends. We were both working at Cutting Edge. He came in and I was I was supposed to get this job handling Pro Tools rigs. And then lo and behold, I asked, I said, so when do I start? You know, when do I shift from my existing position? They said, well, actually you're not. And I was like, what do you mean I'm not? And they said, well, we hired this other guy 
This is Sig Napstead telling me this. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was like, what? You didn't tell me about this? So in comes Matt, and that was my first introduction to him. Uh-huh. I was like, this is the fucker that took my job. <laughs> but I quickly figured out that I really got along with him. And he invited me over to your place where I first met you. My distinct memory of your place was, was very well laid out and just kind of had an air of like, these guys are really trying to get clients in here. They're, the place looked clean and number one memory, incense in the bathroom, burning uh, incense in the yeah. bathroom. So it's just like, that was the first time I'd seen something like that. I was like, incense in the bath? Oh, boy, that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Excuse the yeah. pun. No, that's okay. That sounds like something I would have done back then, sure. Yeah, it was a little hippie, but it was also, it made perfect sense to me. I was like, yeah. Well, you know, I was always of the opinion that a studio had to have a vibe. Oh, it had a vibe. If the studio doesn't have a vibe, then the music won't have a vibe. I, I'm, I'm a big believer that whatever the vibe in the studio and the room is in the session is the vibe that comes out on the recording. So I, I was always doing everything I could to really promote a really good vibe and good energy in the facility. So I think incense was definitely one of my approaches. Yeah. <laughs> Well, before we get into the Pyramine thing and how that really developed, what are those takeaways that you had from that time period with Matt, with Gilbert Street and running a facility? And what was the key thing of that time period? Because I'm sure if you look back on it, it's like a chunk of time that preceded Pyramine officially. Well, you have to remember that the late 90s, 96 on, was really the beginning of the dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. That hit San Francisco much like what we've seen in recent years, but it was kind of the precursor to the internet revolution. Mm-hmm. And so it was early stages and nobody really knew where that was going. But one thing was certain was there's a, there was a lot of money flying around and a lot of these companies had to develop content and they didn't know how to go about it because they were not experienced agencies. Mm. They were not experienced in media production. They were businesses that were looking to take advantage of this wave. And they were, there was a lot of startup money back then. And this was pre 2000 when it kind of blew up. If you remember that there was the dot-com bust. But running up to that boom, running up to that bus was about four or five really good boom years. And I saw that as a kind of blue ocean opportunity to really understand the new technology at play, to really understand how music and sound was going to be integrated. One of the big things back then was, can we sonify a website and how much better will it be? I don't know if you remember Thomas Dolby Mm. and his technology, what he was trying to do. But all of that was at play back then. So we did quite a bit to become available to that community and push the envelope and develop creative ways to give them solutions to get what they wanted. And that was interesting because a lot of that was just kind of discovering new workflows. Even back then, the concept of the MP3 was new how to compress audio so that it would stream when you hit the website. So we ended up doing a lot of that. And then a lot of that led to work on CD-ROMs. I don't know if you remember the CD-ROM. The whole multimedia thing. Correct. Correct. And at that very same time, I was asked to develop a series of classes for San Francisco State University's Multimedia Studies Program. Hmm. And they said, hey, Greg, you've been recommended to us by a guy by the name of Joe West. 
I don't know if that rings a bell for you. Do you remember Joe West? I don't. Well, Joe West was a visionary in our time. He started a company called Computers and Music, and he was one of the first to sell MIDI interfaces like the Austin MIDI Phase 2, which was a serial MIDI interface that would connect to your Mac Plus computer. Hmm. And he had a really great business selling the hardware accoutrement and the software for MIDI sequencing and eventually digital audio. So he was a visionary in that regard, and I worked for him for a while. But I was there kind of on the front lines, beta testing and doing product demos for the various different sequencers that were coming out on the market. Mm -hmm. Voyetra was a big one back then. Performer that eventually became Digital Performer. And then another one, which was Opcode Studio Vision. Oh, yeah. Right? Anyway, this is a, could be a long story, so I'm going to try to cut to the chase a little bit. And ultimately, he recommended me to develop this curriculum, and I saw it as a new opportunity and a way to do something different. So I went uh, there to SF State's Multimedia Studies program. They say, hey, we've got a great studio. We want you to develop some classes for us in audio engineering. And I said, well, okay, let me see your studios. So I went down to the facilities, which were downtown, not on their main campus, but downtown, because it was a, an extended learning program that they had. And lo and behold, I walk into their studio, air quotes, air quotes, and the studio was 14 G4 Mac towers parked at a desk with Audio Media 2 cards in them, all running Sound Designer 2 and the precursor to Pro Tools, which was DEC, yeah. the four-track version of Pro Tools. And then there was a little Mackie mixer at the front of the room for the instructor. So I said, well, this is not a studio. There's no way this is a studio. And I ran a class that they booked initially, and there were like five or six students in there, and the energy wasn't right. The focus wasn't right. And this was at a time when I was working with all these clients in the dot-com industry. And I said, well, you guys are running a multimedia studies program here. Why don't we reframe this course and call it digital audio for the internet, and I'll work on creating sound bites that people can use on their website and how to create compression formats that will stream easily. So I reframed the whole class, and lo and behold, my next session was sold out. The room was packed. And I said, ah, I think I'm onto something here. I would say so. <laughs> yeah. And it tied in nicely with the new business development that we were doing with the studio. And of course, one thing led to another. So I developed a couple of classes in that regard, one that was specifically around sound design, another one about dialogue and recording voice. And those classes did quite well. I showed that to Matt and Matt said, well, why don't we, since they don't have studios, maybe we could offer SF State the opportunity to use our facilities to run some of these classes out of. And that was when we developed the beginning of our DigiDesign, at the time DigiDesign, now Avid, certification training for Pro Tools. So we were one of the first, if not the first, to work with Avid in that capacity to develop Pro Tools training in conjunction with San Francisco State using our private facilities. And that was kind of the genesis of much of our programs and how we became a school was through that process we ended up doing the same thing with Logic. David Earl, if you oh, yeah. remember Dave Earl. Well, yeah, absolutely. Wasn't Logic at that time still with eMagic? Correct. That's right. So this predated Apple, Apple's purchase, and well predated David Earl working as the product manager for Logic Now yeah. at Apple. Yeah. But it was really with him that we developed our early Logic training and certification with Apple for that, and that he eventually developed his persona as the SF Logic Ninja. Yeah. 
right? And we would put out videos of him doing this. He would create them. We'd put them up on our YouTube channel and people would eat it up. They loved it. So that helped grow our brand, our awareness, and we realized we were onto something. And that was really the, the genesis of the classes. Of course, before we knew it, and this was, I think, in 2000 or 1999, we were slapped with a cease and desist order by the state of California. For what? Well, in order to run anything resembling a school in the state of California, you have to be registered with the Bureau for Private Post-Secondary Education. Huh. We didn't know this <laughs> back then. We didn't know it. So we learned very quickly that there were rules and regulations to operate as a school in the state of California. And I spent quite a big, bit of time figuring that out back then. And eventually, within a year's time, we became a registered school with the BPPE and then gradually started to develop more and more course offerings, all of which had to be run by them and approved by them. Oh, you mean you had to run the program by them? Right. You have to. You had to submit the documentation showing the curriculum, what it would lead to, and why it should be allowed to be certified as private post-secondary training. And there's quite a few regulations around that. And we still operate under their auspices to this day. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure you know a little bit more about it than you than you did then. I know a lot more about it than I did then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's rather convoluted, but it, along with it comes the ability to train veterans and opens us up to GI Bill, which has been fantastic for us. And getting to know the veterans and having them be a part of our community has been really significant, I'd say, because there's so there's so much drive and enthusiasm behind these vets. And for me, it was it's just been really rewarding to get to know so many vets now. So it gave us the opportunity to train vets as well as offer M1 visas student visas for students who want to immigrate to the States for a year and study with us. So those were two big points of growth for us as we developed our programs and grew as a company. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled.
sampley.app. Check it out. What is difficult in the process of creating something like this? Because PeerMind now has been around for a number of years. I worked for you for a period of time teaching a few classes. What are the stumbling blocks that if somebody listening to this thinks, gee, I want to do some type of schooling like this in audio. Does California present a different challenge than other states in terms of education? Well, yeah, I think California presents a challenge on numerous fronts, no matter what business you're trying to run. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I'm told. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, there's numerous challenges here. I think one of the biggest one is just the facilities themselves and the trainers and managing trainers is not necessarily easy. It's a bit like herding cats. Mm. And we've had many trainers come and go over the years. And of course, you're dealing with the music business. So there's a lot of ego involved in this for a lot of people. And I think particularly today, because music has become so challenging for a lot of people to make a living at, everybody who's invested in recording equipment and is a halfway decent producer or mixer thinks they can pop up a class and put it on the internet and make extra cash. I think what they don't realize in general is the amount of energy and time that has to go into marketing that and branding it and creating the brand that delivers that program and then being consistent. I think if there's anything I've learned over the years is that consistency really matters. Hmm. And that means with every student, with every enrollment cycle, making sure that we deliver a top-notch education and product. Because in many ways, and again, because this is the music business and there is a lot of ego involved, you're also messing with people's dreams. This is a very passion-driven business, one driven by a lot of emotion. And so you have to be very clear on what it is you're delivering and be consistent with it. And that's not easy to do, let alone running facilities and the administration of all of that. I think one of the big challenges when you talk about having a staff in a company like this is the very fact that you have to manage employees. Mm. And state of California mandated that as of January 1st of this year, there was a law that was passed called AB5. The entire entertainment business was up in arms about it because it basically stipulated that you could not hire contractors for your primary purpose of business. So that didn't affect me really all that much personally, but for guys like you and Matt, I mean, when I worked for you, that was our relationship. Our relationship was a 1099-based relationship. Correct. Yeah. And so now, because our instructors deliver our primary business, which is training, we had to make them all employees. So that added to our overhead and added to the complexity of the process of managing and running payroll every two weeks, et cetera. So there, there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of intricacy to all of that. Fortunately, there's great online platforms now. Mm-hmm to run HR off of it that automate a lot of this. And I have taken every advantage I possibly can of these systems and integrating them to automate as much as possible. Because as you know, we don't just have ground campus instructors. We have an online school now. Mm -hmm. So you can go to peermindonline.com. We have a whole 
host of classes there now, and it just keeps growing because we also work with a network of mentors. So we have the ability for people to come to our site and book just one-on-one Zoom sessions with our trainers, which we call mentors in that capacity, because it's really individualized training to your personal needs. So you can pick any one of these mentors and book a one-on-one session for a relatively cheap amount of money. You know, a hundred bucks for an hour of somebody's time is... We've been purposefully trying to keep it very reasonable for people. Mm -hmm. Our hope is that they have a good experience with us and that they see the quality of our programs and training and that they'll want to come and take a class with us or come and enroll in our ground campus or our online programs. That's fantastic. And I think if you're needing some some good advice and you're not going to go to school, spending a hundred bucks to talk to somebody about what you want to do and get that advice, I think that's... That's totally fair. It's beyond fair. And quite frankly, the caliber of these guys is quite substantial. We've got guys from all over the world who have been producing and releasing music and involved in all kinds of different projects and draw from a tremendous amount of experience. And I think more than anything today, experience speaks volumes in our industry. Because again, I was saying earlier, it's a passion-based business. It's very emotion-driven. And you can get caught up in that. And I think it's very important to have a sounding board with somebody who who can not only help you with your music or your sound design or your production skills, but can also be a sounding board for your career and what you're trying to do, either as a developing artist or somebody looking for employment in our industry. You know, teaching and just the, the sharing of knowledge and participating in sharing all these things in the world of recording and music production and all the different disciplines, whether it's studio or games or film and TV, that's all fun. What's not fun is running a business. Some people find it fun. Personally, that's the non-fun part, but such an essential part to do it and do it well. Did you have to kind of find your passion for the business side of that? Yeah. I mean, I've always had a passion for how things work and figuring them out, no matter what they are. Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, I got a multidisciplinary liberal arts major in college. I went to San Francisco State. I studied music and video production. I I literally created my own major in music, business, and broadcasting. Hmm. So it's always been a mix for me. And I've always had a penchant for entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from my father's influence, who always said, you're best off being the master of your own destiny, control your world, be your world. And I always, that was always in the back of my mind was to have a business that I, that I called my own. Even if I had partners or people along the way, which are obviously essential to development and growth, nonetheless, I feel like, yeah, running the business for me is, it's part of it. And over the years, it's, it's varied. When we were at our peak as a company back in, I would say, 2017, we were producing AAA video game soundtracks, running 10,000 square feet, five studios, multiple training labs, admin offices. I was able to afford to have a lot of administrative support. And I think the natural ebb and flow of a company like ours is such that when you need to contract, manage change and overhead, you need to be able to be the savvy entrepreneur who can go in there and take over some of those administrative responsibilities until you're ready to take the next growth step again. So that's what I've witnessed, you know, over time. You know, there's there's two relationships that are long-term for you that I, I'm now realizing. 
First of all, we talked about your long-term relationship with your Gilbert Street landlord and how that, that that's significant in my mind. The other significant relationship there is your relationship with Matt Donner as a business partner. Business partners come and go and people have their time together and then it just fizzles out. You guys have been together for years. You're like an old married couple. Yeah, we joke about that a lot. We, we definitely do. What's the key to that? How, how do people keep a relationship going like that? Because you and Matt are very different people. Yeah, we are. You know, I think the key to it is giving each other the space to be creative and to execute on each of our vision for what this wants to be. Mm-hmm. And that that's challenging. We would butt heads often around that. And quite frankly, once Matt moved up to Davis, he started to distance himself from the operations of the company because he wanted to work from home more. Mm -hmm. Commuting into the city from Davis is no joke, even during this time of pandemic. So I think, you know, our relationship has kind of, in a way, come to a place now where it's Matt contributes where he can, but he's not nearly as active a contributor to the company anymore. So he's still a partner in the company, Mm -hmm. but he's also pursuing other interests as well. And I gave him the space to do that. When he told me he wanted to do that, I said, I totally get it. He's got a family and you have to be respectful of each other's needs. It's not just about the needs of the company. It's about our personal needs and ensuring that there's always going to be a paycheck there and that our benefits are covered, all those things. So it's a, it's a delicate dance. I think Matt and I have done a pretty damn good job of dancing it, but also giving each other the space to be who we are and, and do what we do. Because you're right, we are very different people, ultimately. So hearing you talk about what you and Matt have, I think that that is, that's really good advice. Just letting people breathe. Well, I think there's also a mutual respect. And on top of that, we have a really good team. We have a core team of guys Mm -hmm. that on a weekly basis, we all meet to run the operation. So we have one person fully focused on content development for Pyramine, another one who's back-end web development and who works on organizing and putting out the blog and that content that we, we do every week, along with our weekly newsletter that I've become very active in putting out. Then we have a, a dedicated sales team that is there specifically for our customers. And we, then we have an internal senior instructor who is also there for students so that we keep our finger on the pulse of the students and and their needs. So I got to say, even though Matt and I do have a long-term relationship, I think one of the keys to that success has been to develop and maintain a team over the years. And the players have changed, but clearly defining those roles Mm -hmm. and giving them enough control or power to make decisions and drive the company forward has made it a lot easier on Matt and myself. Without our team, there's no way Matt and I could have grown this to where we have. So I give them a lot of credit for this too. COVID-19, impacts of that now, and where do you see things going for Pyramine post all of that? Well, I think we were exceptionally fortunate to get off of Folsom Street when we did Mm -hmm. in September, because we got out from some pretty soul-crushing overhead over there. I won't say exactly how much, but it was very substantial Mm -hmm. that our landlords were just continually applying pressure on. So we were fortunate enough to get out of there, really lean up the overhead of the company. And so 
by the time COVID had hit in March, we had restructured already and we were very adept at using Zoom because of all the mentorship bookings and online school that we'd been developing. Mm -hmm. So it was relatively easy for us to flip all of our classes into an online model and get permission from the state to do so. Uh, remember the BPPE? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can't just do it, right? You have to get their permission. Of course, they understood the circumstances and they gave us the permission and we were able to, at this point, run all of our classes online. Even my advanced mixing and production class that I teach, I do it over Zoom with a group, with the students, and everybody learns from everybody else's development process. So, for example, in my class, there will be sessions where the students will just simply share their track and they'll screen share and we will watch and then I will comment and give them direct feedback on the mixes mm -hmm. online. And then there will be other times where they will upload their sessions for me and I will run the session and show them my approach to development. So there's a give and take around it. But long story short, COVID-19 has, I think, in many ways been a good thing for us. I hate to say it. It's kind of weird, right? Yeah. But it's forced our hand to modernize and develop these programs in a way that keep them accessible for a lot more people. Because a lot of people can't afford to move to San Francisco and live here for a year. We're still running our programs. We just finished a summer enrollment, which I thought was going to tank completely because of COVID-19. And I was very pleasantly surprised that we had as much interest as we had and people were comfortable with the online modality. So yeah, we just enrolled for summer program, both our daytime programs and our night program. We do an Ableton night class that meets twice a week. You know, we've got a great new instructor for that. I don't know if you're familiar with Matt Moldover. Oh, I, I know by the Moldover. Name. Yeah. He's teaching our class as of tonight. Wow. Class number one for Matt with the Ableton Knight program. Huh. Yeah. So super psyched to have him. Isn't he kind of like the Dave Earl of Ableton? Well, he's the Dave Earl of controllerism. He'll be referred to as the godfather of controllerism because he was one of the first to really hack and develop really extensive MIDI controllers for live performance. Oh, interesting. And we recently did a webinar with him where he showed the history of his controllers and the development of the various controllers he's built over time. Pretty fascinating and definitely a really talented and bright guy. He's a great guitar player. He's putting out some cool music videos. So we're very excited to have him him on board as one of our trainers now. But that's an online class, isn't it? Typically it's not. It's a ground campus night class that we host here in San Francisco, but it looks like we're going to be getting back on campus sometime mid-July uh -huh. with social distancing, what I prefer to call physical distancing. We have 12 per lab and we have two labs. So I think what we're going to be doing scheduling wise is just splitting them up into six per room. So it'll, it won't be as cost effective for us, but it'll still give the students a great experience and we'll still be running classes until further notice when we can get more than six people in a room. So I, I want to ask you, like many people, many San Franciscans, as a matter of fact, are leaving in record numbers because I think COVID-19, as you say, has forced many people's hand into new habits, new ways of doing things. And in doing so, they've discovered that they actually don't have to be in the same place that they always thought they had to be. Have you at any point in this COVID-19 process thought, I could live anywhere and, and run this as long as I have my team together? That's my goal. That's exactly what I'm, I'm intending to do over the next couple of years. Phase myself out, much like Matt. I've, I've given him the ability to back out of operational responsibilities, replace him with other folks. And over time, over the next few years, I'm sure I'll be doing the same. It'll either be that or we'll sell the company. 
So one of the two, I, I probably should have sold it a long time ago, quite frankly, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know? there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that have gone into the Pyramine company in general and the relationships. And I'm sure that you get so much enjoyment, though, from it, too. I do. I do. But I've been doing this a long time as well. Mm-hmm. And there are other things I'd like to explore in life. Yeah. I am excited about the fact that we'll be bringing our label back. We're collaborating and working with different students and other artists to bring our label back. We started a label back, gosh, it was over 10 years ago, called Epiphyte Records. And, uh, you know, we looked back and we said, God, we, we put out a lot of great music. So I just recently built a Bandcamp label page out of it mm-hmm. with all the different releases. And we're about to make that announcement. So by the time this podcast hits, we should have announced the fact that we will have our label out again and be putting out new releases, which is an opportunity for me to put out some of my music, which I've done over the years, but not nearly as much as I'd like to. Mm -hmm. So even at my crusty old age now, I I still have the creative urge and the desire. And what really ignites that a lot is just being around so much young energy. And that's the great part around being all of the students that we have here. There's so much great energy and enthusiasm and talent that it's it's fabulous for me to get to hear what they're doing and, and to help them develop it and hopefully help them put it out too. Like, I mean, just recently I produced a track. One of our students did a remix of it. And then another one of them, she's a very talented violinist, Alexis. She goes by P-Fuzz. She played violin on the track and I'm going to put it out. Hmm. That's called Soul Potion, and it's a fun track, just a you know really fun track and something I'm excited about. So that's the fun side of things. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I look back at my time teaching some classes at Pyramind, and one thing that always stuck with me was is, and it, it, at the time it frustrated me, there was, you know, there's always a class where you have some of the students sitting in the back, not paying attention, headphones on, maybe doing some beats on their headphones, And then you've got a crew of people in the front row and they're like full of questions and full of energy. It's, it was, it was always like, I'm sure like any typical classroom in anywhere in this world. And those students that sat in the front row, I'm either working with them now or friends with them to this day. Cliff Truesdell, who wrote the Working Class Audio theme song. Exactly. I, I, I was just going to comment on that. That's great. Yeah. I'm working on some some video projects that Max Savage is, is helping with. So my time at Pyramind and the relationships I built there, back to our discussion of how important relationships are, I value those relationships highly. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and that gives me a lot of gratification to hear you say that because I feel like If anything, I can look back on all these years and say, we've really built a community and a community that has built lifelong career changing relationships for a lot of people. And for me, that's probably one of the most satisfying things I can look back on and and feel with regards to what Pyramind has done, because we've touched so many lives, literally, literally thousands of people's lives. Or Ben Bernstein, he former WCA guest Ben Bernstein. Not only has he been a guest on the show, he is a good friend, and we work back and forth between each other. Yeah. There's a lot of PeerMind students out there in the world that I'm sure are off doing great things as well as the guys I've mentioned. Oh, there's quite a few, and quite a few of them have gone on to become trainers for us, mm-hmm. to become mentors on our network, and that's partly also what I'm excited about because in many ways, inspired by you, I'm going to launch a podcast in the yes. coming weeks. 
ahead. Uh, it's called Mentor My Mix. And I'm going to be, I am interviewing, I've already recorded about four or five of these, various trainers, producers, mentors on our network, uh-huh. and really talking about the nexus of training and music production. Because we've come into an era now where so many producers are becoming educators, yeah, sharing their knowledge in order to make a living. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of what this podcast is going to be about is exactly that. And what does it take to become successful at being an online educator, launching your own education brand and integrating that with the production work. Because like you, what makes us, I think, ultimately happy is when we get to work on cool projects. That's why for many years, I kept that business model alive because I loved it. Being able to work on really cool projects in tandem with running the school just was, it was a really great, fulfilling model. But in the end, it just became too much to manage. And I think that's where Matt and I had our very clear delineations of responsibility because he was running the education part. I was running the production business and we grew both substantially. Of course, I was the CEO. I've always been the CEO. So I had to oversee the operations on both sides. But now we've been forced to scale back our production side of the business and focus a lot of our energy on the training side of the business and just to keep everything rolling. Yeah. But I love still working on projects. That's why I'm uh, back to releasing music again. And we still have a a good handful of very loyal commercial clients that we continue to service, Microsoft being one of them. So, okay, for the audience, you're going to have to rattle off some URLs for me. What are the the URLs they should pay attention to that I should include in the show notes? Sure. Well, Pyramind.com is our main site. PyramindStudios.com is the studio production arm of the company. Pyramind Online com is the online learning portal. It's where we host all of our online classes. Mm-hmm. So if you're an online learner, that's the place to go to. You can go to peermind.com and go to our mentorship tab if you want to book a one-on-one mentorship. Eventually, that's all going to become integrated in our online classes, online training. But for now, it's on a separate page. So those are the, those are the main ones. And then the new one will be epiphyterecords.com, which will take you to Bandcamp and our label Bandcamp page. And that's distributed via InGrooves. So it'll be all, it's also on all the major services. And then the podcast, which we will be hosting very soon, probably on our YouTube channel as well. We've got a, a pretty robust YouTube channel. So if you look for PiraTube or just Pyramind, if you just search for Pyramind on YouTube, you'll find our channel. We've got hundreds of great training videos up there, free resources for people to check out. We've got over 121,000 subscribers on that channel now, and that's growing. So we have you know, our fingers in a lot of different places. It's kind of what I call the greater Pyramind ecosystem. Well, for the audience, I will put a link in the show notes to all of that stuff. So if you want to follow up with everything Greg's talking about, you can do that in the show notes and and head on over to Pyramind and check out all the offerings there. So Greg, thank you so much for your time today. And I got a little bit of a history lesson on the formation of Pyramind and filled in a few holes of my knowledge. So thank you for answering my my very pressing questions. Yeah, th- I just want to say thank you, Matt. I feel like this has been a long time coming, so I really appreciate you finally getting me on your podcast here. And also thanks for just being a great host and for being an inspiration with the podcast that you've been producing for as long as you have. I don't know, how many episodes do you have now? Like 250 plus? You're episode 291. <laughs> that just tells me how much you value our relationship, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> It's all good, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Greg. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Greg Gordon here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank Anne-Marie Plo for her editing. I want to thank Anne-Marie Plo on the edit for I want to thank Anne-Marie Plo for editing. Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme song and Chuck Smith for his lovely voice. I want to thank you for coming back week after week. Connect with me on LinkedIn as usual. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Spread the word. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.